Oaths Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. friends and listeners and welcome to episode 4 of season 10 of the Thos Hermes podcast. Season 10, episode 4 already and it's September 17 here today, Sunday, September 17 of 2023. My name is Rudolf and I'm very happy to welcome you to a new episode which has a subtitle called Silver Age Russian Rosicrucians. And my guest today to talk about this highly interesting subject um, is Charlotte Cowell and uh, Silver Age Russian Rosicrucian. That's the time around the turn of the 20th century, basically 1890 to the 1920s. What we have to say about that we will do in a moment. For the moment, it's great to have you back, to have you here as my listeners and also very special welcome to those returning listeners and more and more of you are returning listeners and I guess now there are also with the new season quite a number of new ones I can see that in the figures very nice development and well it's great to feel that yeah well that podcast visibly was missed it's now back again and Almost all listeners are back. That's very, very nice. So um, thank you to those who are also patrons of the podcast. We need you and we need, honestly, we need more of those. We need more of those because this podcast has its cost, not a high cost. And I am not making any living out of that, of course. But it's a podcast that needs to be produced, that needs its software and uh, all of it. So please consider becoming a patron go to the patreon site and with one dollar per episode already you can be with us as a patron i would really be grateful and those of you who want to donate of course there is still that donation button on the website www.thothermes.com that's t-h-o-t-h-e-r-m-e-s.com but there's also there a new option which is that buy me a coffee button. You have maybe heard about that, seen them on other websites. Well, if you want to buy me a coffee, that's great. I love coffee and drink coffee during the recordings, actually. So it would be nice to get one from you. Uh, consider that if you prefer that to Patreon. Talking about the website, you can also leave me a voicemail and other messages in writing there. Please do. I got one very nice voicemail this week, and I want to play this to you now. Oh, hi, Rudolph. It's Stuart here, one of your longish-term Australian Patreons, and I just wanted to say how good it is to have you and the show back in my life. Uh, thank you for all that you do. I really appreciate it. Thanks. You know, it's really nice to get that kind of messages. Thank you, Stuart, and 
Um, well, do it as well. It would be nice to have you and maybe if you want that can also be played like I did just this one here on the show. Righto. And um, well, also, of course, on that website, you find all the episodes so far. That's 150-ish episodes now. It's become really a nice number. And I know that many of you listen to them by interest to see what happened before here or there. It's a whole compendium of people, very different approaches about magic, the occult, esotericism. It's really nice to have that nice collection together by now. So enjoy it. Go there, listen to it for free, of course. It's really a great, great stuff. Well, um, you know, we had September 11 earlier this week and at the occasion of September 11, Mark Stavish, who has been a returning guest here on the show, Mark Stavish, the guy who is running the Institute for Hermetic Studies, he wrote a post on Facebook at the occasion of September 11. And I really would like to read that to you here before we go into the show. Let me read Mark Stavish's posting of September 11, 2023 called Ash from the World Trade Center 9-11. On this day, 22 years ago, I awoke from a dream, he writes. I dreamt in a simple 2D cartoonish style of a female lion that had escaped from an underground or basement window, leapt into the air twice towards a tall, thin and flat-roofed building. The second time it struck the building two-thirds of the way up and all was red and fire. 22 is the final card of the tarot. And for some of the French systems, it is the card of the fool and leather shin, the three prongs of fire. For 22 years, I have warned and worked and organized activities aimed at focusing members of the occult and esoteric communities to better prepare for the future. The future that is now upon us only to find that it was like talking to fools. Yes, some, very few, heard the message and took up the cross of work. There is still time, but the window is closing. This is why we need to understand the reality that zealots, not senators, always win. Why? If you have to ask, you are not paying attention. Zealots are all in, no half measures. If you want to win the battle for the control of your mind, one that is now expanding to be control of your words and action as well, total spectrum dominance, then wake up and recognize the reality of the world you are in. Otherwise, like the fool, the edge of the cliff is just one step away. Death is inevitable. Ignorance for those who say they are on the path is a choice. The world you build now and for your children and grandchildren, the esoteric structures for the continuity of wisdom, these are in reality the ones you built for yourself. For where else will you return? Thank you, Mark Savage, so much for those words and for letting me also read them here to our audience. And, uh, well, not much more to be said for the moment. I'm probably going to read texts like that from time to time on the show in the future in those intros. I think it's important to remember why we all 
love and work in the esoteric and occult world. Okay, music now. Eric Satie, who you know certainly, Eric Satie, who was also a friend of a whole esoteric circle in Paris in the late 19th century. And he's a good fit for the subject we talk about here. It's the same period of time. And of course, Russian Rosicrucians we are talking about today have been heavily influenced by France and French occultists like Papoose, etc. So Eric Satie was kind of an obvious choice. It's classical piano music here today. So sorry for those who like it harder next time again. Okay. But this time, yes, it's going to be the three Nocien, because there are three pieces, three piano pieces, short piano pieces, and we're going to play them all three today. Now it's number one, Nocien number one, played by Reinbert Deleu on the piano. Enjoy.
Genossian number one by Eric Satie, played by Rein Bertelow. We're going to hear the two other Genossian a little later in the show, as usual. Right, so, Silver Age Russian Rosicrucians. I don't know if you have heard the term. Of course, Silver Age in Russia, that is a, a, a name that was given to the literature period, so to speak, the period where all those big writers um, were mostly in St. Petersburg and um, were producing these great pieces of literature, but it has also been used for, for example, Masonic period. And of course, now we use it for the Rosicrucians there, because I must say I discovered it almost by coincidence that this group existed. I discovered it through a book uh, that was re-edited, a book which is rather famous but had also kind of disappeared a bit, The Tarot by Muni Sadu. We're going to speak about that in two weeks with John Michael Greer. He uh, wrote the foreword to that book and in the foreword he mentions the teacher and the biggest influence on Muni Sadu, a gentleman named G.O. Mibes from St. Petersburg, a Russian who had his Rosicrucian group there. So I researched that and came to the astonishing surprise that very recently, since 2020 only, in the last three years, the two most important books by G.O. Mibes, uh, Tarot Majors and Tarot Minors, and also other books from Nina Rudikova, The Solar Way, or The Holy Book of Thoughts by Vladimir Shmakov, all people who lived in that area in St. Petersburg at the time of the turn of the century and later with the uh, Russian Revolution and who were also then pursued by the early communist regime. And of course, one important name in that period and who also was very much influenced by that group is Valentin Tomberg. You might have heard about him. We will also speak to Charlotte Cole about Valentin Tomberg. But I might even do an extra show on Tomberg in the, at the later stage because he's also a very, very interesting figure on other levels, anthroposophy and Christian mysticism. So, um, But there was an exciting period going on, very much influenced also by French occultism, of course. Papus was a very, very big influence on this group there in Russia. And... Well, we're going to talk about all this, and especially I can only recommend you to go to the website that I post also, of course, in the show notes, which is Shin uh, Publications. Um, Shin is, of course, the name of the of one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet uh, given to the fool in that system, in that French tarot system. And, well, coincidences, they do not exist, they happen you see the text that I read, the text that I read by Mark Stavish, who refers to the fool and its letter, attributed letter Shin. Isn't it interesting? It was written much later or 10 days later after I had done this interview with Charlotte Cowell. So, well, those things happened and Carl Gustav Jung, who we are going to talk about in the next episode, he would have found his own explanation for that. Well, back to the Russians and back to Charlotte Cole. Charlotte Cole lives in England, has a, that small publishing house, and she's done extraordinary work and job with a lot of personal investment and, and talent and uh, 
so much knowledge about bringing this out again on the surface of the world. And I think it's even the first English language issues and translations and publications of those texts. Highly fascinating. I can only recommend reading them. Um, complete new world opened to me. But of course, the French system, but pushed in a kind of different way, deeper, more rooted, probably. Well, without further ado, let's go to England to meet Charlotte Cole, and she will tell us all about how she discovered those Silver Age Russian Rosicrucians and what she made of them. Here comes the interview. It is a great pleasure for me to welcome here on the Thoth Hermes podcast, Charlotte Cole, who is joining us from the UK, from, from England, I believe. And uh, Charlotte, good evening. It's great to have you here on the show. Hello, good evening. Yes, I am in the UK and thank you so much for asking me. It's um, a great honor. I don't usually do this type of thing, so I'm a little bit, little bit nervous, but it's also quite a treat because I don't often get to talk to somebody about well, it. <laughs> great. Um, well, uh, I hope that uh, that will change because the subject we're going to talk about here is really a fascinating subject, I must say. And um, even though I, I tend to think I have quite a nice knowledge in the in the area of, of the occult and the Western tradition. I must say I discovered something a few weeks ago um, which brought me to you and brought me to to the to Shin publications which you lead. Um, because well I, I might if if I may just briefly tell that story. Um, yes. I bought uh, the new edition of the tarot book by Muni Sadu. And it has an intro by my friend John Michael Greer who actually will be on the show and also talking about Sado in a few weeks here. And um, in this introduction of the Sado book, I read the background of Muni Sado, which started in Russia. He was Polish, Sado, but he had Russian teachers in the early 1910s. Uh, and one of them was Gio Mibes. And I thought, hmm, and I had never heard about that person. So I better look that up. And I did look it up. And came into the whole fascinating area about the so-called silver era um, Russian, well, let's call them Rosicrucians yes. and um, Mebes and others. And I found out about his books, his writings, Tarot on the Tarot as well. And then I found out about you, that you were had translated those books lately. Actually, it's only about three and a half years ago that they were published for the yeah. first time in English, I believe. Yeah and other books and yeah and that's why we're here so it's it's really great to talk about a subject that i believe will be also rather new um, for many many of our listeners even though many of them have quite a good knowledge so uh, i hope we can discover together with you charlotte here today uh, those people and why you also found out yourself and uh, how it all happened right yeah well um, it, I suppose it started for me with Valentin Tomberg, who mm -hmm. I um, think is a name that will be perhaps more familiar 
than uh, Moibus or Shmakov or mm. Rennikova to some of your listeners. Definitely, definitely, yes. Um, the kind of the, 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 the grand master of the Christian emetic tradition um, who has many mm-hmm. beloved friends around the world. Now, I was kind of a, a long-term, I don't like to say student of Tomberg, although that would be accurate because I, I studied his books, but he himself did say he didn't want people to found a school in his name or a circle. And so, you know, hence he, he sort of addressed his letters to his friends mm-hmm. rather than his pupils. So so let's say I, I was a friend of Tomberg for many, many years since I was a student um, mm-hmm. at university. I had a born-again Christian experience spontaneously when I was 21. And somehow this led me almost <laughs> immediately to... To Tomberg's book, I, I think that the way that that happened was I'd read a book by Hans Urs von Balthasar, uh, a wonderful book called Prayer, and that really kind of helped me in my kind of, you know, it was a, a spontaneous thing. I wasn't going to church. I didn't have kind of anybody to talk to about this experience that I was going through. So uh, von Balthasar's book was a wonderful guide. And after that, I looked for other books that he'd mm-hmm. written. And very quickly seemed to arrive at Meditations on the Tarot. Mm-hmm. I can't remember how I acquired the book, but I do remember very clearly sitting on my bed in the university campus, looking down <laughs> at Meditations on the Tarot. And, you know, looking back, and this is, you know, over over 30 years ago, um, it just, it transformed my life. And anybody who, who's read that book, I think, um, and, and loves it as much as I do will have had a similar experience, how they, they open these pages and, and this voice from beyond the grave is uh-huh. speaking to them, you know, yeah, definitely. in such a profound way. Um, so I got into this and the studies went on and that, you know, like life happens and I kind of did my best, you know, working alone, um, you know, as well as trying to, you know, live a normal life like you have to do, support yourself whilst going through this kind of intense spiritual journey which you know Tom Webb was was a light throughout mm-hmm. that journey and you know now and again made contact with other people there was a kind of Yahoo group devoted to, to studying his work and you know gradually my, my understanding deepened over the years until I started to kind of read his text in a different way become more interested in him in him as a person um there's very little available in, in the English language about him. There is now a wonderful biography in German um, written by Michael French, recently mm-hmm. deceased, um, and Liesl he- Heckman, um, which you know provided a lot of biography. But but there wasn't much about him in English, so I became gradually more and more fascinated by the little tantalising snippets he gives of um, the, of Russia, the country that he left as a refugee at the age of I think nineteen. Which was in 1917, approximately, right? Yes, and he... he was the start went, of the revolution there. Yeah, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. his family, he was with a family who worked for the, the Tsar, his father, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the Tomberg family was at risk, so they fled to Estonia. Now, I, I sort of discovered this later, but at, at the time um, when I sort of was first discovering all this, a couple of names leapt out at me from meditations on the tarot. Uh, one of them um, was the Holy Book of Thoth by Vladimir Shmakov. 
Mm-hmm. And the other one I eventually figured out was Moebus or Meebs. I always call him Meebs because I'm English and I can't pronounce anything. Um, and it's yeah. just easy yeah. for me to say. I, I actually don't know how you properly pronounce him because do you know his origins? Because he doesn't sound like a Russian name. It's Swedish. I think it's a Swedish. Swedish name. Then he must be Meebus probably. It must yes. be Moebus. Meebus, mm-hmm. yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I'm always mm-hmm. mispronouncing it. And the Russian names are completely, you know. Um, of course. Almost yes. gobbledygook to me. But yeah. Um, so I, I heard about this person, Moebus or Moebus, and you know I kind of meditated on this name for a long, long time because I didn't I didn't have access to the book. I didn't know uh, that Muni Sadhu had kind of basically you know copied it. I, so you know I would have gone to it if, if I'd known at that time, but I didn't. And eventually, I just became more and more interested. I thought I must try to to find a way of translating it. And I, I think I must have at a certain point found something on the internet. I made a couple of abortive attempts. Um, at one point, a couple of us tried to do it, translate the the, the Mebus book. Mm-hmm. We didn't really get anywhere. And then I think towards the end of 2019, I eventually thought, right, I, I have to do this. I have to read it. I was so kind of, uh, you know, it just became, I, mm-hmm. I have to read this book. <laughs> so I did the kind of um, translation stuff online. I don't speak Russian, sadly. I wish I did. I did have some Russian friends who helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, at times because some of the words just defied um, translation. And then when lockdown came, I was kind of thought, oh, crumbs, you know, like everybody, what on earth's going on <laughs> with COVID, et cetera, et cetera, that dreaded word. Um, I thought, I know, I'll do the books. <laughs> so that's why kind of in rapid succession, I just kind of channeled all my energy yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, sometimes uh, that's always the case when bad things like COVID bring out good things. Also, like those books. Uh, if I may, let, let's let's stick to Tomberg a little bit because yeah. even though he's not maybe completely at the center of the subject that we are talking about here about this Silver Age Russian school, so to speak, but um, um, still, as you, not only you, uh, I think, were inspired by him to follow that up. I think it's a not a common thread that would be exaggerated, but it's something that is sounds quite logical because Tomberg is better known than the others of that group. Yes. So Tomberg, um, um, he and that comes timely also to this podcast because it, as it happens last week, uh, we spoke about anthroposophy here on on the okay. show. Yeah. Uh, and um, so it might be interesting that there was a link because I think he made quite a spectacular move, Tomberg. I mean, from anthroposophy away to the Christian. Hermeticism, Christian mysticism, and was attacked a bit from both sides at, at some point. Uh, can oh, you yeah. can you uh, put some light on that for those who don't know that story exactly? Yes. Well, so Tom, he, he started actually from a, a Lutheran household. Um, mm. I think was profoundly Christian from a very early age. He had, you know, I think his mother, as is fairly well known, had an extremely formative influence on his spiritual life. I think from, from you know, a very early age, he asked her about God and basically she gave him an answer to the effect that, you know, God is, is all around us, which, that, that, you know, I'm paraphrasing, I can't remember exactly what she said to him, but mm-hmm. it had the effect of, you know, awakening the spiritual impulse in him. And this, he found himself in a place and a time where if you were interested in mysticism, magic and the occult, you could hardly be anywhere better than Russia at the turn of the century because right. um, the, the Tsar, uh, Nicholas, at a certain point, he he issued the Edict of Tolerance of Religion. 
I think that was perhaps 1905. Mm. And from there on in, kind of mystical groups mushroomed and sprouted. And you know, especially in St. Petersburg around the court of the Tsar, this is where Moebus and others were able to start, um, you know, teaching their work. So Tomberg went into this environment and, you know, he, you know, you could hardly have a more receptive person than him. Mm-hmm. Now, when he, le- he left uh, as a teenager to Estonia, and this is sort of something I gradually uncovered as I was doing more and more research. He, um, as is fairly well known, his mother was murdered tragically by the, the Red Terror that was mm-hmm. pursuing them. Um, so that was, again, another, um, this affected him for his whole life and affected his, his view on, on communism, which was, okay, sure. <laughs> you know, he had plenty of reasons to, to feel that way, but this just kind of um, sealed it for him. Yeah. He came into contact with Nina Rodnikova. So Nina Rodnikova was, I guess you could say, the star pupil of, of Mebus, Mebus, Mebus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, she was a part of his inner circle of the Promethean group, which was, I think that was actually a, a women's group because Moobs' um, uh, wife also was teaching. But Nina Rundakova was, was, was the star. And when she emigrated to Estonia, she, or, or escaped, I should say, to Estonia mm-hmm. with the retreating army, uh, the white army, um, with her husband at the time, the, the diaspora formed around her. She, she was very, very important to the formation of this whole school absolutely kind of crucial because she she not only was the rallying point for the the russian diaspora but she also was the editor of um she edited helped to edit a spiritual magazine um i think mm-hmm. occultism and yoga um, okay. a magazine um she was in regular communication with the rurics um so this magazine was was produced and sent out worldwide she was doing this special work and it was her that the young Tomberg was initiated by. So when he's talking about how he, in, I think it's in the Fool Arcanum, how how he met with people and they had a mutual recognition. They recognized one another because they loved one another, which is how he describes um, emeticists and spiritual seekers will, will feel this kinship, mm-hmm. people who are on the same path. And he, he, although he doesn't name her, I don't think, this is who he meant. And he met this whole group and they initiated him into all that they knew. So this is where he picked up his emetic initiation right. into work of the, that I've been publishing. Now, I think the anthroposophy, he, he, this then became a growing theme. At a certain stage, he, as you will be aware, had a correspondence with Rudolf Steiner that was sure. absolutely incredibly formative to him mm-hmm. for, for a long time. And he became... You know, as in everything that Tomberg did, he he mastered, it seems to me, every field, and he went through a series of, of great initiations in his in his life through various Christian um, expressions of Christianity, if you like, from the Rosicrucian, you know, the Lutherism, then the Rosicrucianism, then we had the Anthroposophy um, yeah. of of Steiner, which you know we have. There's probably good reason to believe that he might have stuck with that. Um, if he hadn't come into conflict with them because he rose high in the anthroposophical society in Estonia. I think, I can't remember who was heading up um, that branch in Estonia, but Tomberg did take it over at a certain point in the 1930s. Um, He was desperate to to meet Rudolf Steiner. That was destined never to happen. Um, 
but he did he did receive his membership from him and he also became great friends with Marie Steiner and, and others and you know eventually gravitated physically moved um, so that he could be closer to the Anthroposophical Society. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it, it all went horribly wrong, um, as I'm not sure what your guest said, if he you know, was speaking about... No, we weren't speaking about that at all. We were just, we were just talking on, uh, on the main themes of Anthroposophy, basically. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, he, yeah, so he had this great split with Anthroposophy. Yeah. Um, I think there's different reasons for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that after the death of Rudolf Steiner, that inevitably, you know, he was the leader and irreplaceable, I think, um, as all, you know, you have a great major figure like this. Yeah. Somebody can't just be recruited so simply into that role. It's got to kind of, you know, mm-hmm. dissemble in some way. Um, you know, we, we had, and we had two factions breaking out there. Now, one of the reasons that they, um, they perhaps the, the group that was ranged around Marie Steiner, um, were quite upset because um, Valentin Tomberg had been making lectures of his own, anthroposophical lectures, which they believed were independent lectures, um, mm-hmm. not following, mm-hmm. not basically parroting. Not legitimate. Yeah, so this they didn't like. And then in particular... He published one work, um, I think, I, I don't remember properly, I think it was one of his Old Testament studies, mm-hmm. possibly, um, or it might have been the work, a work on the Christ and the Etheric, which there's a book called Christ and Sophia, which is basically, yes. Tom, yeah, his masterworks of anthroposophy, I call it, this um, amazing, beautiful book. So I'm not personally an, an anthroposophist, but I think that that book is incredible. Mm. And <laughs> I think it might have been the essay on, on Christ and the Etheric, and Whichever one it was, it was at the first, it was taken to have been the lecture given by Steiner, by fellow anthroposophists. And when right. they discovered it was actually Tomberg's, they were, this was, oh, goodness, you know, we're not, we're not happy about this. <laughs> so that, that was bad, and everyone was getting upset about that. Yeah, and then there was also his divorce. So he, um, now I, I don't, you know, I'm kind of sort of trying to remember what I've, I've picked up from this huge biography, but, but Tomberg did... Um, he picked up a wife along the way early in his escape from Russia. Mm-hmm. It may have been a marriage of convenience. She was older than him. Um, they stuck together for whatever, it, you know, and but he, when he got into anthroposophy later, he, he met his, his beloved wife, Marie, who would become his wife, um, mm-hmm. Marie Tomberg. And uh, there was a divorce from his, his first wife. First wife, yeah. Who was very um, friendly with Marie Steiner. So that was another reason why right. we weren't, weren't too happy with him. So all, all these things were happening. And the upshot yeah. was that they expelled him and he resigned. You know, so all at once he... I, I think actually it might have been his decision to walk away. Um, I, I'm not a German speaker. So I'm, you know, my kind of picking through his biography is, is painful um, <laughs> I do my best. I mean, I, I think this book, you know, it's a, I don't know if you've seen the biography um, that's been written about him by, you know, Michael French, but it's absolutely magnificent, this work. It's so scholarly. It's in two volumes. It's gone through all his letters, you know, letters from his friends. It's, it's just amazing. You know, it's just, sadly, it's not available in English. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I haven't seen it, but but um, good to know. And we will certainly post a link on the show notes about that. Um 
But but let's let's go back to this Russian group and then to the others. Um, you mentioned uh, when Tomberg was in Estonia and we, we he met Rudnikova there, uh, who became his initiator and teacher. Uh, uh, but where did this Russian group we are going to talk about in a minute, uh, where did they get that? Where did the, 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 the hermetic current come from to them right because here in the west we don't know enough about that period in russia and how it was fed was it fed through france because of course french was the noble language in saint petersburg at the time when you mm -hmm. read anna karenina for example it's it's half in french and all the nobles speak french in the book yep. uh, even though it's written in russian uh, so was it the french influence that brought a levy currency into the russian occultism or how did it where did it come from well that was certainly very important so um we've got a, a, a confluence of influences And this is actually called the synthetic philosophy. The word synthetic um, is not quite how we understand it in English, which sounds like nylon or plastic. Um, it's <laughs> yeah, more sure. like a synthesization. So yes. they synthesized incredible multiple influences. One of them most definitely was the French occult school, mm. um, which with um, actually it was Papu, um, or sometimes I call him Papers, which again, people nearly explode. Uh, yes. Papu. Papu, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, Russia and people who know his work will kind of recognize elements of it in the, the Mubis tarot. You certainly do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's quite clear. So that's, that's certainly one very important thread and the French language, as you rightly point out, meditations of the tarot was also originally written in French. So that's, That's quite crucial. Uh, and, and even the word synthétique uh, in French means what it does not mean in English, as you just pointed well, there out. There you go. It's right. a much yeah. more harmonious language. It's a you know, beautiful language. Mm. Um, but there are other influences as well. So I, I think, and I'm, I kind of, I look at them as a whole school because I think that's the best way to understand them because you get a kind of one piece of the puzzle from one of them Another of them, of them kind of, you know, highlights certain parts and between them, you, you do get a real body of philosophy and, and they've all contributed a, a part to this. Now, one other person that they were definitely influenced greatly by was uh, Vladimir Slovyov, the, the great Sofianic Russian philosopher, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who, who sort of, he, he was kind of labelled a heretic at, at the time for his teachings, but some of the really deep core themes in their work can be traceable to him. I know I've not studied him in, in great detail. I know a certain amount about him and, and enough to sort of say that this was a major influence. The idea of, of a spiritual unity, which overrides everything, this was really fundamental. I mean, I know that sounds obvious. Okay, unity, anybody who's engaged in spiritual work thinks about this. But for them, this was, uh, you know, this is where the whole work of the binaries and the, the turneries and the trinity, this is all coming from this, this basic underlying unity and, and the sociology of, of Slovyov. So, so this was another important influence. Then, of course, you had Madame Blavatsky. Yes. So, you know, the monarchy yes. 
of, of the whole, you know, yeah. <laughs> of, of a culture. Yeah, yeah. You must not forget her, absolutely, because, of course, oh, yeah. her origins are exactly in that area and at that time. Uh, exactly. Well, yeah, and yeah. she was just, you know, absolutely amazing. This woman, you know, what she brought, brought out and managed to kind of, you know, whatever one thinks of her, you know, she just you know, blew these doors right open. Yeah. So we, we mustn't forget her. Um, now, also in the case of, of Mubus, he was a Freemason, Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'm not. So there are perhaps certain parts of his work that somebody who is a Mason will understand better than me, or it might be of more interest, you know, perhaps specifics of the rituals. Um, when they're getting into that sort of thing, I, I kind of be, I glaze over a little bit because I'm not, you know, a ritual magician mm-hmm. in, in that kind of way. But it, he, he certainly was, and he was um, a grand master. So I think, and, and there is a tradition um, in Russia, um, that's, that's going back to before him. So he also had an initiator who was also Martinist. So I think you've got a, a couple of, you know, so on, on the one hand, you've got the French side, but you've also got the, um, the Freemasonry side, which I think actually had a Polish, um, interestingly. Yes. But of course, Martinism is also French, uh, yes. French, uh, current in in freemasonry so yeah. certainly also there has a lot of french uh, influences and when you take history of freemasonry in russia which is of course older than that the period you are talking about um uh, it was by about in, in the 18th century that it also already came to russia right rather early stage yes um, um but uh, partly hidden partly not hidden of course um yeah. so and then you have the kabbalah which, yes. you know, as a Martinist, that's also within, you know, um, is recognisable in in the Martinism. I, I do think, though, that they developed a better understanding of Kabbalah. From what I can see, I mean, I haven't delved into the French school as much because um, I've just focused on, on this and what I've been doing. Mm. From what I've read, I, I do think that Moebus in particular, he was a mathematician. Um, as I say in the book, his initiatory name was Butator who is the mm-hmm. angel of mathematics. Mm-hmm. And his book contains all these mathematical deconstructions of the of the tarot arcana, which at first I thought, oh, my goodness, that's just impossible. But actually, when I got into it, I thought, no, that actually is really logical and it, it makes a lot of sense. So I think his his Kabbalah was 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 quite strong. And uh, I think the same of, of Shmakov. So that's, you know, perhaps that's something that they, they developed um, oh, of course, because in the Rosicrucian movement, you can't do without it. So, so yes. that, 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 that's clear. But um, was his, his uh, I'm talking about the major tarot book now, right? So we have mm-hmm. to, we have, uh, so to, to, to talk, to tell our audience, because of course they, they haven't seen, probably not seen your books yet. Okay. They should, they should soon, but they have, probably have not yet. So the Mabus books are split up in, in two volumes, uh, or orig- by origin already, the minor, the minor arcana and the major arcana. Yeah. And, um, in the major arcana, um, He's really doing something that uh, is quite amazing. He really, he, it's not a tarot book as most people would expect it, or I did. It's a tarot book that really is the book of thought, really, already here. Even it doesn't take the, the title like the other book that we're talking about. But yeah. it's, it's, it's explaining the whole background of hermeticism somehow, right? Yes. And, They'd, there's in the 11th Arcanum, 
Um, this is where they go into uh, an esoteric history. Um, this, the course in esoteric history was taught by Mobus's wife. Um, so this, this whole, would I say the course, so this was taught to students as a kind of series of lectures. Yes. And, and were they published in, in, in those lessons? Uh, yes. Format, so the students right. actually, so it's actually the students, um, so I suppose that's quite appropriate then that I did it because I'm also a student and I also published it, you know, published his book. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was his students who published it and, and little discrepancies and things I think, oh, is that a mistake or, I sometimes put that down to them having taken notes, even though I think they did take the notes very well. Um, but anyway, in the 11th Arcanum, they're talking about the, the Rosicrucian spiritual history of the world as they saw mm -hmm. it and as they taught it. Um, and in there, they're looking at the kind of the, the karmic threads of the Russian people. And they and I, and I don't know the ins and outs or how they arrived at it, or, or I don't recall, um, but they did link themselves to the Egyptians. So they right. saw a direct link of, of transmission between Egypt and, and Russia. I mean, I don't know if, if as a Mason, somebody would know, you know, know more about that. Um, but mm, they, but don't they think so. Don't think so. Mm, mm, no. Mm. So, so they, they traced this to, to, um, to Egypt. And then they also, interestingly, which I'd never heard before, traced the English to Carthage, which, um, you know, I, I don't really have a, an opinion of it. <laughs> that's that's mm -hmm. just what, what they, they said. That was kind of part of their their timeline. I, th I think Rudolf Steiner also has um, timelines and karmic relationships between, you know, yes, I was going to Tomberg. say that's of course an influence that comes probably through Tomberg. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It could, yeah, yeah, it could yeah, be. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, so they, they're reaching back to, to Egypt um, and this influence is, is incredibly strong. I mean, I think um, it's, it's I, we can't show it, we don't have it to the screens, do we? But I think the images of the tarot itself also have a very Egyptian flavor. Yeah. The ones that they use, um, the, the book. I mean, that's why it's a little bit grainy because you know the original images, as far as I know, are long since gone. You know, his book, his work was destroyed. Um, of eventually, course, yes. You yeah, know, when yeah, he was yeah, caught yeah. by the, the Red Terror. Um, yeah. But the the original images and then the cover, you know, of, of the High Priestess with you know with that mask on and, and the horns of Isis, it just it couldn't be more clear, you know. Um, and that strange eagle holding the key of of of, of uh, the, 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 the 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 Venus key actually in in, in its claws and stuff. It's 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 full of imagery that is not common tarot imagery, right? You're right, and I find it in incredibly arcane. A cult. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. when I when I first got, you know, I, I sort of just to jump a little bit back to when I first got into all this stuff. But you know, when I was sitting there holding my Tomberg book as a, as a twenty one year old, it was years before I actually bought tarot cards because I still thought they were kind of well, are they a little bit devilish? You know, I just had this kind of, mm -hmm. you know, you get this this uh, this impression, and or you you shouldn't really be doing that. Um, but, you know, so even though I was reading meditation on the tarot, I had a, a sort of fear of a tarot cards. I eventually sort of overcame that and and bought various decks over the year i still sort of treat them with with care great care but um but yeah the the, the images on the Mebus books are, are completely um unusual i i yeah i've not seen anything like them either there was an artist working um in russia mustutin mm -hmm. um, he was a particular friend of Shmakov. so he he um he did also works in a kind of art deco kind of style um you might see some of them. I think I've, I've actually in the in the Shmakov book though I had contemporary images, so I don't think you'll you'll see them necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
So now let, let's put that straight for our audience, because um, once again, there are those two Mebus books, right? Tarot, yeah. uh, a major arcana, minor arcana. You mentioned uh, card 11, and we should point out that, of course, when we are talking about 11 here, it is not the usual right or wait order where <laughs> 8 and 11 are the other way around, right? So we are talking of about course. the traditional French um early uh before before right away uh, uh order where eight and eleven are the other way around than that what right away yes. users are used to okay and the fool is with shin which i've had many yes. discussions about <laughs> that that's of course that's that's a major discussion absolutely we should also point that out you're absolutely right the fool is shin which means it's 21 actually and then yes. tau is then the world the, 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 world, the, the yes. universe uh which is 22 and the uh, magician so we, is aleph <laughs> exactly we start with aleph with with number one that that often happens that that the fool goes to the end is not so rare that you find in many schools but um so that that zero basically is after 21 but um in this school he's the zero and 21 so it's exactly like, exactly yeah. and that's the point uh, he's shin uh, the 21st yeah. Uh, and not the twenty-second letter. That's that's amazing, and that's right? really, really, really important in this school. I mean, I've had great mm. long discussions about about the whole Shin element, and I'm aware that there's a there's you know it was said to have been uh, students of Levi giving the wrong information. You know, I know there's a whole thing about that, but for me, this system works, and Shin to this school was the invincible letter this was the most important letter and and this was another thing that interested me as i was reading um, meditations on the tarot where the kabbalistic element i would say is greatly sublimated so he goes into the tetragrammaton at the mm -hmm. beginning um in their relationship with the first four letters which again goes back to mebus and, and leva you know and the, and the french school so that's kind of quite quite classical but he doesn't even though he calls them letters you know, letter one, letter two, letter three, which I think mm. is acknowledging the Hebrew alphabet. Sure. It's really only the letter Shin and its association with the fool that he takes the trouble to, to mention. So he says, well, you know, the other letters, they're all wrong. And that's, I think, him being quite humorous because he did have a very good sense of humor, Valentin Tomberg. Mm. But the Shin um, is important to, to have with, with the fool. Um, and, I, and I think this is, and if you read the, again, Arcanum 11 of the Amoebus book, Force, mm -hmm. when he's describing the esoteric history of, um, sort of the history of the world in religious terms from, from day one, you know, starting with Hermes, you know, going through Buddha and, and, and various periods in, in history. Mm -hmm. When he gets to Rosicrucian Templar history, I think the, the second period of that, yeah. He will then say, or the students said, the Master Meebs did not authorize publication of the Shin element. <laughs> and this is kind of written in capitals. Now, when I was kind of you know, translating that, you know, working through this book and think, oh, great, you know, I'm, I'm finding out everything now, all those things that I didn't know from meditation of the tarot and all this, this great information about the Kabbalah, which I'd not really you know understood before his elucidating and then he gets a door oh, and then it this line where he says you know we're not going to tell you the the shin element um that became a, another enormous focus of fascination for me because i thought well you know i have to find out what what that is <laughs> because it's 100 years since yeah so 
these works that were published, you know, as with, I think, is the case with all deep occult texts, there's supposed to be a proper period of time where they're digested. So they start off yes. being transmitted to the kind of inner circle and the esoteric chain, which is, um, you know, the authentic chain of transmission. But it's not made public until a proper amount of time has gestated because, you know, the, these works are ahead, they're ahead of time. And if they're to be revealed prematurely, it's um, therefore power becomes inhibited or it could be dangerous to people who, who read them before the right time or, you know, inhibit their development. But after the 100 years, it's it's fine. So I thought, OK, I need to figure out what the Shinnection element is. And I went through all kinds of um, <laughs> theories about why this could be so. But I think I eventually realised it was something possibly quite simple in that they were referring to either themselves or somebody else within Russia who it would have endangered to mention because obviously at that time, um, as their work went on and, and the revolution happened and the Russian civil war took over, it became, you know, they had to go underground and they, they couldn't reveal themselves. So I, I think it was possibly a case of self-preservation um, and, and not revealing their, their masters at that time. It might have been. It's really fascinating stories that we hear here and we're going to continue to hear them later after the break. Let's take that short musical break uh, as promised and it will be Nocienne number no. 2 now, of course. Rossienne, Nocienne number no. 2 by French composer Eric Satie, a contemporary of this group of Russian occultists that we were talking about here and we'll continue to talk about in a moment. Um, Eric Satie... Um, who wrote uh, this music, by the way, without bars, without musical bars, without rhythm inscribed in the usual way, but of course it's a rhythmic music and you know how to play it. Uh, interpreter here, Ryan Bertelow, he's going at a very slow pace compared to other recordings. I love that. I like what he makes of that. So... Nossian number two will now come up and after which we return to Charlotte Cole and talk in the second half about, um, continue to talk about this group of Russian occultists. And uh, after the interview, we have Nosien number three, the third and final of those three little miniatures for piano. And uh, I hope you will enjoy the music just as much as the interview. After the last piece of music, of course, I come back and will let you know the interesting interview that we will hear next week so don't go away before you know about that and now enjoy the music
I think you're quite right with that. And I think uh, they it's kind of a way of using occult language also to protect yourself, of course. Yes. But what you just said about being the right time, I think that's crucial. And it has probably finds also its reasoning in the fact that um, this was, a, as we said, a course, the Mibis Tarot is a course. It's not a book that you read from A to Z in in in, in a week or so. Mm -hmm. It is. It's something, at least as I not only understand it but also feel it. Um, it needs time. Yes. It's almost like uh, I wouldn't go faster in reading than a lesson per week. You know, even though I'm, I'm. I may say quite seasoned in the subject, right? Yes. But there is so many new ideas, very occult background things that relate other things that you have heard in different in different ways, in new ways. It needs time to settle in and then you take it or you take it not, but um, it needs time to settle in and to to tell you what is meant. It, it's not a it's not an easy read. Would you agree? I would definitely agree. Um, the same with Tomberg. I mean, aside from meditations on the tarot, I didn't really have any I'd not really read any occult books because, as I mentioned at the start, I was born again Christian, so I was more interested in purely Christ Christian works as I perceived mm -hmm. them, and I tended to avoid the um, occult stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so when I, you know, and then I kind of plunged into this Moebus tarot, and it was like, whoa, like you've kind of gone from zero to, you know, a thousand, it, because this book, <laughs> as you said, is so complex and rich and deep and i would sometimes just sit there reading one sentence 15 times and i would be just going into a into a dream thinking what has he said you know and then I, sometimes it wouldn't click until then i'd be you know i might be in the allotment and doing some gardening and then it suddenly come into my head okay that's what that's what he meant um mm. you know and suddenly the penny would drop or, or i would have an experience in my own life and then i'd go back and, and read something and i think okay now i i get what what they're saying because i think I mean, Mubis, he's, he's just deeply occult, and I think he's written from an astral perspective. Yeah. Uh, the, the plane of, of, of magic, the plane of initiation. Um, and they were serious about this stuff. I mean, I sometimes when I'm, um, you know, I read out portions on, on my YouTube channel sometimes, and now and again I, I kind of feel like I don't want to read that out, I don't think, because it just feels like... Um, Tomberg distinguishes between... Uh, divine magic, personal magic, and sorcery. Now, I don't mm -hmm. think that Moebius, um, you know, there certainly is not a black magician, even though he was accused of being by the Soviets before they sent him to a gulag. I think mm -hmm. he's certainly um, on on the side of the light. But for me, from a, or from a Christian perspective, some of the things might seem a bit, mm, okay, I'm not sure about that one. That's a gray area. <laughs> Do I really mm -hmm. want to be, be kind of, teaching that but on the other hand you know um it's not for me to judge um you know and and they actually did teach light and dark initiations um and he said the purpose was to prepare students for the machinations of the enemy which i think if you think about the era in which they were working was very real and present danger in a way that we don't thankfully 
have to experience. Yeah, well, absolutely. But I think also it's it's part of hermeticism as such, as, as it is taught, and it comes out very clearly when he talks uh, in the chapter that you also read out, as you just said on your YouTube channel, the neutralization of the binary. Yes. Uh, and uh, the, the neutralization of the binary, which is a term I haven't found in many places else than with Sadhu or with Mebes, and Sadhu certainly got it from Mebes, um, that um, needs to acknowledge that there is two parts which create the third dialectically, right? And, yeah. and that would never be possible if you, if you only saw light, of course. And, and the kind of astral, so when he's talking about binaries um, and he gives some of the major binaries and he says quite early on, I think in The Magician Arcanum, that neutralizing the spirit yeah. matter or spirit form um, I think Nina Rudnikova puts it, binary is, is, you know, the start of initiation and the midway point between those, the neutralization is in the astral. Absolutely. It's, but but it's, yeah. it's not, if I may say, I don't want to correct you, but I wouldn't call it a midway. That's exactly the difference. It's not a midway. It's a, oh. it's a third state, right? The, the, the neutralization of the binary is, is a third thing. It's not. Yes, it's, it's a kind of. Transcendent, yes, because yeah. there's different. Yes, you're right. It's a triangle, it's, actually. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not level with the two others. Right? It makes a triangle exactly. So yeah. that's the other yeah. thing about the binaries. You can have kind of a horizontal neutralization, which is a compromise. Yeah. Um, a below um, neutralization, which is just a failure. <laughs> You've just had an argument, basically. Um, or the emetic goal, which is indeed the transcendental synthesis, the third point that makes your trinity, which makes your triangle. Um, exactly. And which yeah. becomes the base of one of the points of the next of the next binary, actually. Which, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And um, he shows that very clearly also in when he, I don't want to say descends, but when he, when he goes from Aleph or from the magician card right the whole way to 21, to, to, to the world, uh, it puts them all in triangles, right? And, and, and He does uh, put them in triangles. Yeah. And then you've also, but you've also got the quaternary, um, yes. <laughs> the yes. rotor, you know, and so many different layers um, yeah. with these yeah. numbers. Um, yeah. And then when you get to Shmakov, you go into decads. <laughs> yes, is exactly. Now, let's, I mean, before we go to the, all those books, um, because uh, I know, I'm I, I, you you you're you called, and I want to know why you called your publication company or house uh, Shin Publications. That's actually where people can also find those books. Um, why Shin Publications? Because of what we just talked about, or, or uh, what was your choice there? Yes, so. Whilst, yes, because of meditations on the tarot, where mm. so I, I didn't know any Kabbalah. I'm still, you know, very much a starter. This, that's a lifetime's work, Kabbalah. Um, I started to learn the Hebrew alphabet. But the letter Shin, I, I've sort of remarked to friends about this before, because Tomberg makes so much of it, I felt like I'd spent decades trying to understand the letter Shin <laughs> and didn't mm. really, before I even started to understand the others, before the Tree of Life even made any kind of starter sense to me, this letter was just um, was just there. Um, mm. And then when I, I saw this, you know, the master me didn't authorize. It just, it just captured my imagination and, and 
I thought just shin is, is what I've been doing. So right, right. That's kind of and you call your website Alchemical Weddings, right? That's also where people will find you, and I will link that on the show notes as well. Um, uh, so alchemy, of course, alchemy in the context of hermeticism is is present. It's is necessarily there, but is alchemy a particular uh, um, interest of yourself, or why did you call it like that? It's quite interesting, actually, that I did call it alchemical weddings, because, of course, that's a form of binary, you know, the marriage of sun and, and of uh, course, uh, yes. sun and moon or heaven and earth. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I am not an alchemist. No. So I've, I've not gone into a lab and, mm -hmm. and, and done this sort of thing. I know people who have, um, but I'm that I would blow myself up if I if I started doing things like that. My my personality would, I, I think, blow the shed up. So, no, I, I'm not. I'm not mm -hmm. that knowledgeable about alchemy, the, the principles, some of the underlying, underlying principles perhaps, but the idea of the alchemical wedding and the Cupid and Psyche and the mythological aspects of it, that did always capture my imagination. I mean, my first publication was actually kind of a great epic poem, which um, was looking at the myth of Artemis and Apollo and Orion. Uh -huh. So the alchemical weddings more is, is more that kind of... Um, Theme than than me, you know, with the Bonson burner trying to make some gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, Actually, I could make some gold. Uh, al al alchemy making of making gold is not inner part alchemy. of hermeticism anyway. So that you... I know it's the inner alchemy. Exactly. Um, I've got, although I've got a friend who does have a, a a thing very well set up that he's making things in, and I don't know how he does it, but it's very complicated. Um, well, he doesn't. I think he's based on, on similar to the work of perhaps John de Bui or the philosophers of nature, that, that type of. Yeah, that's, a, that's another school, of course. Yes, yeah, sure. But OK, so we have we have Mibes, um, who was kind of, can we say, the father of that group uh, who, well, father, of course, you know what I mean? The, 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 I, I think so. Yeah, I think he was the he was the, 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 the main figure in that group. But then you were talking about Rudnikova uh, yeah. and you also published her book, of course. Uh, the Solar Way. Exactly, yeah. The Solar Way, which is a very important book. Um, then you published, and we were you mentioning that name also, The Holy Book of Thought um, by Shmakov, Vladimir Shmakov, a beautiful, heavy book uh, um, with a lot of drawings and interesting text. So who were they? I mean, Rudnikova, you basically already talked about her, uh, who she was, but how was she in relation to Nibis? Was she, a, was she on a kind of, um, was she taught by Nibis or was she independent of him? And who yes, was Shmarkov? Yeah, she was his, his, um, his, his student, chief right? pupil, yeah. um, Nina Rudnikova. Um, now, I got to her because um, having done the Moebus book and, and talking to people about this, um, both, you know, occultists and people who were studying Tomberg, and a couple of Tombergians, let's call them, um, said to me, or people that I, I sort of trusted, you know, talking to about this sort of thing, they said, well, you know, Shmakov is really important. And I thought, okay, um, it was much more difficult getting hold of his book. And... I went through the houses trying to kind of get a, a, a copy of it, a hard copy of this book. Eventually, I found one. I think it might even have come through Ukraine, um, mm -hmm. funnily enough. But so I got hold of this book, um, and it was like a closed book. I, you know, I kind of had it, and I thought I, it was just like it was bolted shut. Hmm. <laughs> I, I just could not um, begin it. I, I just didn't know where to begin. And so I, I kind of had it on the shelf for, for 18 months, 
Um, and then I got to speaking to, actually it was, I think, Art Fjörg, who's done the um, the beautiful artwork that you see on the cover and inside. Um, yes. He's such an artist. And he's very knowledgeable about the Schmackel School and he works within a school that is kind of an heir to that tradition. And he said to me, really, you know, Nina Rundakova is the bridge between Moebus and Schmackel. Okay. And so you should, you know, maybe you should begin with her first if you want to find. And I thought, oh, okay, that's that's a great idea. <laughs> so I, I then did exactly that. I, I found, I can't remember where, a copy of, of The Side of the Way, managed to translate that. And I think I'd already done the Tarot Miners by now. And, and you may notice a similarity of style because that is, that's her. So she rescued the notes of the Tarot Miners. She'd kept mm-hmm. the notes. She, this was an inner circle teaching, the miners, compared to the majors, which was, I don't want to say a public course, mm-hmm. but it was more widely taught. The miners were considered a, a higher teaching, um, a Kabbalistic expansion of the 22nd Arcanum, which is the world, and the, the work of a true initiate and much more orderly um, is the Tarot Miners. So she had saved this, this wonderful text and that which then went to Brazil and, and was sort of preserved out there by, by um, again, a kind of diaspora group from, from the Moibus. They'd been taught mm-hmm. by and they, they saved his work in Brazil and Chile. She, in the meantime, was very... So, so, sorry, who saved that in Brazil and Chile? I didn't get that. Who, who was it? So, so, so Nina Rumnikova, she gave her notes to a friend called Katerina. I um, can't remember her surname. Ah, okay. And she, she moved to South America and, and, and saved yes, it. So right. Rumnikova right. knew that this lady was moving to South America. Right. So, right. so she gave the notes and basically said to her, yeah. give them yeah. to somebody dignified who you think will look after them and print them. Yeah. As it happened, this lady, when she moved there, she managed to... I think she was living with somebody whose brother had happened to be a, a pupil of, of Moebus. So this this great sort of wonderful um, synchronicity happened and they preserved in Portuguese for quite a long time until I published in English um, the, the Tarot Miners and there was a, another initiate of Moebus called Nicholas Gears, a wonderful, wonderful Martinist, um, lovely gentleman um, mm-hmm. who's held in very high esteem um, by, you know, he's passed, long passed over, but his students in Chile preserve that work. So that's, um, that was the Tarot Miners. But Nina Rundakova in the meantime, she she was, she was stayed in Estonia and was incredibly active. So this is why I think she was, may have been actually the shin element because she was this, she was a rallying point. She also served as a spy for the white Russian forces in exile. So okay. she, she really kind of laid it on the line and she was in this correspondence with the Rurics. And in the meantime, she was producing her own work. So she did, um, poetry. She wrote some poetry. Um, other works, which I guess of a, are of a perhaps more theosophical nature, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. is, is, is her tradition. And on the So The Way. So when I started to, you know, I just thought this was the most beautiful text, actually. It was much simpler. It so is, yeah. for, for the beginner, the So The Way would be the one because it is so much, you know, it, it, it just... It cuts a lot of the, the complexity out, but not the the, the spirituality mm-hmm. of, of, of the teaching of this school. So she produces this book. And if you think that Moebus is the occult astral magus type figure, Shmakov is metaphysical. So he's, and then Nina Ronikova is kind of, this is why I believe he said she was like the bridge between them. So mm-hmm. she kind of gives you that. She takes you just a little bit into the metaphysical, more mental realm 
um, which is where you need to be if you're going to read this this huge book by Shmakov. Um, and he was working, so even though Moebius was an influence and he refers to him um, as such, as uh, the Tarot Majors being a, a core text, mm-hmm. he's working in Moscow. So he had his own his own group. Um, and he was a railway engineer, right? He was a railway engineer and yeah. a really, truly extraordinary person, you know, because he produced this work in his 20s. Not not just this work, but also another work called Pneumatology, which is even more, you know, e- even deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, his father is very, very controversial. Um, and this was another reason that I had this book on a shelf for a long time thinking, what do I do with this? You know, is it appropriate um, to do this? Um, but his father also bequeathed an enormous library which um, I'm sure Shmakov benefited from because, you know, his, his learning is absolutely, you know, I, I, it blows my mind when I, you know, that, that translation, you know, I'm going to have to keep working on that because I, I did the best I could. But, um, you know, there were just times when I thought this is, this is beyond me because it's such, you know, that his level of, of knowledge and education was, was higher than mine. You know, yeah. so I was trying, trying to, to, pick my way through it the best I could. But he, he, he synthesized an absolutely enormous amount of material. And he actually had a um, kind of strange spiritual awakening of his own at an early age where he, in his diary, there's, a, there's an unusual entry where he refers to somebody called Ben Alleman. Um, it's a, a Jewish name, a, a Kabbalist name. Mm-hmm. Ben Alleman wakes up. Um, in him, and there isn't really much more detail, um, not not that I could find or read. But he had a, he had a spiritual awakening, and then you know a bit like um, I think that happened with Paul Foster. You know, suddenly all this work starts coming out uh, of a spiritual nature, and and you know then we got the Holy Book of Thoth, and and I, but I think there was also a, a more mm, poignant and more down to earth reason why he condensed all of this knowledge into these books was he was preparing to flee Russia. And right. three truckloads of books, you know, got sent to different parts of the empire. Those were his books. And mm-hmm. I think what he saved was in those books. You know, this was basically, because if you notice, there's a massive amount of quotations. Yes. So I think he was preserving that for himself, um, you know, because mm-hmm. he had to leave. He had to sort of leap on the hop, um, escaped along with the others, and basically it's kind of melted away, disappeared. We think uh, and, and the name, the Holy Book of Thoth, that's his name, the name he gave to the book, or is that something that's, that... That's the name he gave to it. Um, so which would, which would underline what you just said, uh, that theory, that because the, the Book of Thoth, of course, can also be seen as the Book of Wisdom, the collected wisdom. Uh, yeah. Comp- uh, yeah. And there's, sort of, there's about... 900 references and footnotes which were just <laughs> mm. absolute murder you know and all these different languages which i didn't understand i mean crumbs you no. know i was trying to i mean some of the things i just thought i i, I just you know i'll do what i can but <laughs> this is you know it's, it's a little bit of a work in work in progress that's so why I, I apologize if if there's you know errors in there but i i think you know um what yeah. one does what one can <laughs> yes yeah, sure uh I mean, that was a question I had for you. I mean, those books are amazing and amazingly dense and uh, uh, they are representing the, the, the lifetime work of several people here. And of course, one can have an interest in that, even as a collector, go after the original text as you did, etc., etc. But um, from that to 
translating and publishing them, it's still quite a step. So what what motivated you personally and why? Did, I mean, we are grateful for that, but why Why on earth did you do it? I mean, it's amazing. It's great. It's, it's, it's huge work, right? Well, with with the Mobus, I, I wanted to read it. So mm. I, I wanted to, to produce it for myself. And because I knew a lot of people who were studying Tomberg, I knew that others would be interested in that as well. Mm. So a, a few people in particular was like, oh, you've got to do that, you've got to do that. And I think it was a case of I could I could be bothered to do it. Um, I think it's as simple as that. I, and I became very sort of, as I was, because at first I'm thinking I'll just translate it and, and do it for myself. Yeah. And I became just absorbed in the lives of these people um, and what they went through, because obviously I, I tried to research a little bit of biography information about them. What, what I could find, which wasn't very much. Um, you know, I tried to find people that had a link with them in Russia um, and, and just to find out any information that I could. And, and just their, their plight touched me because they were young people, um, younger than, than me. I mean, I'm no, not exactly a spring chicken, but they were, you know, in their 30s, 20s, you know, people, young people kind of in the prime of life, the, the flower of the Russian intelligentsia as Tomberg describes them, you know, hopeful because we've had this edict of the tolerance of religion. You know, suddenly they're allowed to do what we're able to do every day, do what they want, basically, practice the religion that they want. Um, and then it was just, you know, then we had the Bolshevik Revolution yeah. where this this horror just descended on on Russia and and then, you know, we were already in, in World War, you know, World War One and darkness came to Europe and, and it just seemed like these people had been been forgotten and that they'd produced such this amazing work that was kind of, I think Tom Wood describes it, you know, there's a great shroud of snow that covers pre-revolutionary Russia and those words just struck me as, as sad and poignant and it's like he's talking about lost friends and just, just something that's just been irrevocably lost. And I just thought to myself, well, it doesn't have to be completely lost because for a start, you know, um, I think certainly with the Moebus book, um, Muni Sadhu had, you know, I, I had a bit of a issue with him. However, he did perform a service in preserving that work, um, mm. at least in the Polish language, which um, is important because I don't know if he was a Mason, maybe he was a Mason, but that tradition does go back there. Um, but I just, I just wanted to preserve it and I, I became sort of quite obsessed with the idea that the time is now <laughs> i mean with yeah. me once once i get into something you know i just become you know I'm, I'm like a mad person i just want to i just want to get this job done and i think once i'd started it from the tarot majors it was obvious to do the minors and and that was much simpler to do mm. the minors the nina rodnikova book was also quite straightforward relatively um and then i thought right i'm gonna try and do <laughs> do the do the schmackov one which um Yes, that that was kind of the, the last one, and by far the most difficult. Yeah, uh, and then there is another book which is not in the same vein, I guess. Uh, I have it, but I haven't read it to be honest yet. I just have it there on my shelf because I was overwhelmed by all those books that I had to I had to get and wasn't 
ready to well didn't have time to read them all yet um but the Adelons, the, this is also in your series it has the subtitle the occult imprisonment of madame blavatsky i know uh, um, <laughs> what what is that tell us about You've this, also, but, there's also another book by the way the major and the fool so i did yes I did the, exactly but the, yeah 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 oh, tell, God, tell sorry, us about those two tell us about those two okay sorry my computer all went off there I've, i've got my screen back can you still hear me Yes, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I did also The Magi and the Fool, which was originally envisaged as a magazine, and I had sort of contributions from some great people like Mark Stavish and Paul Weston and some sort of some more established authors. Um, so I did, I did The Magi and the Fool, which was really difficult because it was in colour, and Amazon makes it quite difficult when you want to do kind of colour text like that. Um, mm -hmm. And then, then eventually, you know, I was building up to – I wanted to write a sort of novel, but – Really, every time I try to write something, it turns into some sort of, you know, it, it has an occult quality or it's it's not just an, a normal story. And it became a bit of a kind of, um, I mean, there's, there's a whole history behind Madame Lovatsky. Do you want me to, to get into this one? What happened with the Eidolons? Uh, I haven't read it yet. No, I just have it standing there and it's waiting for to be read. <laughs> so I had a bit of a, basically... The idea of the occult imprisonment of Madame Blavatsky, this was something I read about years ago in a book by C.G. Harrison called mm -hmm. The Transcendental Universe, a wonderful book um, by an anthroposophist, where he, he writes about this happening to her. Um, now, it's kind of an anecdotal thing. I think Rudolf Steiner also refers to it. Mm -hmm. And the upshot of it was, he says, is that emeticists in America and Europe, the person of Madame Blavatsky, her horoscope in particular, gave them such cause for fear and panic that they decided that something must be done to stop her. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this story. So you can read in C.G. Harrison's book. I think it's actually available online. Um, and he tells this story um, you know, better than I'm doing because it goes into it in, in quite depth. But the mm -hmm. upshot was that the he says, emeticists in America decided that to they needed to bind her to stop her, her acting in a certain way. And so they put her in a cult prison. Um, the Europeans apparently didn't want to do this. Um, there was even a conference about it in Vienna. I had no idea, you know, I've not been able to trace this conference historically. This is all what C.G. Harrison says. And the C.G. Harrison is quite a credible person. If you read his book, it's quite a serious book. This. It's not... Um, a frivolous book. He's he's actually trying to clear up certain errors um, as he sees them in spiritual teaching, for example, around the idea of the eighth sphere and mm -hmm. uh, misapprehensions that have arisen around certain topics. And and this is where he, he gets into what, what happened to her. Now, it struck me as it is really, I, I kind of thought about this, the occult imprisonment of Manuel Blavatsky. It, I was sort of thunderstruck that, Even the idea of this had come up, whether or not, you know, of course, it's a moot point, whether or not they did this magical act. Um, let's let's say they did at least try, um, whether or not they succeeded is another matter. But it did make me think about the trajectory her life took and how she became more left field after this point in time where this was supposed to have happened. She certainly became um, more anti um, Christian, perhaps, or, or anti-church. 
mm. and more pro-Indian and involved in Indian politics. And I, it just struck me that for somebody as important as Elena Blavatsky to the whole of the spiritual unfoldment of, of our age, the new age, that if she had gone into a more Eastern train of thought and um, of work, that we do see manifesting, I think, in, in the New Age movement at the expense of, of perhaps the Western tradition and the Christian mm -hmm. traditions and or, or the Abraham Megwell, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it just interested me because they, they basically got themselves into a, a conflict with her, um, which also had ramifications politically because as that story goes, she was released from her prison by Indian Indian adepts, uh, living people. Mm. Um, but they were able to exact a, um, a, a charge for that in, in the form of, um, you know, help, helping to break free from the British Empire mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the promotion of their own religion. So, so even though this was a kind of an apocryphal, weird bit of occult lore, it just captured my imagination. Um, but the reason I actually ended up writing a book about it was I, I went into, I was in a Facebook group. I don't have a Facebook profile, but I do go into groups and I'm, I'm not a good person to have in Facebook groups. Um, I seem to annoy, you know, I, <laughs> I get very enthusiastic and I, you know, I, I speak quickly and I, I write quickly and, and everyone right. disrupts everybody. And it's, it's really not intentional because most of the time I'm just looking for somebody to talk to about it because I, I don't have a physical lodge or, you know, many friends around me who, who I talked about things like this. So if I get into a group, I'm you know, incredibly enthusiastic and start talking 10 to the dozen. And anyway, I got, somebody took serious exception to this idea of Madame Blavatsky and, um, was so scathing about her that I just thought this is just unfair. <laughs> I just have to <laughs> kind of stand up for Madame Blavatsky. And it was, it was ironic really, because, I'm not really um, a theosophist in, in that way. Uh, perhaps at another point with another person, I might have actually agreed with them against her, her own philosophy. But on this occasion, I found myself defending her um, okay. and this whole idea. And I thought, well, you know, we've been writing about the other Russians. It's, you know, it's her turn now. Um, and I did use that as an occasion to give kind of cameo roles of a more personal nature to some of the people that I have published books for already, that the right. movie Smakov, Tomberg, they make appearances as eidolons in in that story. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so so another another thing you really should have a look at our listeners here. Um you named the holes I don't know if the, the, the series I don't see it on the on the Shin Publications website, but I see it for example on Amazon when you buy those books. Um that you gave them the kind of collection title if i may say so silver age russian occult uh, uh, group or uh, uh, books right yes um i mean the russian silver age is sometimes that normally is referred to in literature li history of literature uh, meaning the basically period 1890 to 1920, right? Yes, and poetry that's, in particular, yes. Exactly, in poetry. And that's vaguely the time we are speaking here about uh, and the occult development of those, exactly those years, right? Yes. So is, it, is that a creation that you took from poetry and applied it onto the occult or is this something the group also used at the time? I, I, can't, I, I guess I was... 
I suppose in the course of my research, I must have just realised it was that historical era. Um, yeah. I've heard other people refer to kind of the Russian Silver Ages. I, I think sort of in certain circles, it's sort of acknowledged as a, a kind of informal term, perhaps, to describe that Probably, period. Yeah. Probably. Um, and I think I did it on Amazon just because I think I discovered one time that you could create a series. And I just mm. thought, okay, this, this kind of loosely sums up. Yeah. yeah Gary Lachman also uses it, for example, in his book on Holy Russia um, yes. for that for that period. But now I, I, I think he refers to it not in poetry terms, but in terms of history of religion, basically also. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love Gary Lachman, but I was a bit sad that he didn't mention these guys. I did ask him about about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. If we, I, I have no idea, but maybe he wasn't aware of them. As probably many people weren't aware of them for a long time. And probably not. And of course, there are lots of other people to go for. You know, you've got Aspensky. You know, oh, it's yeah. not like there's a shortage sure. of, of, of great people to write about in a book like that. Absolutely. And But I mean, it's uh, to your credit that this has finally seen more light and I hope that also our talk here today will help be helpful to to make more people interested in in those works in in the works that you translated and are now proposing to a larger audience hopefully um, and I can only encourage people to go on the website and on especially also to get those books because really they are fascinating also for seasoned for seasoned uh, hermeticists, seasoned occultists, uh, Western traditioners, it's quite extraordinary. On the website Alchemical Weddings, um, uh, Charlotte, you have one menu point which says GOM Tarot Majors Course. Is that? And then when you click on that, it, it's asking for a, for for a username. So is this a course that you are teaching, or somebody is teaching, or uh, is this something? No, I think yes. I originally put sections. I don't use that website very often. It is it is live. Um, I originally had, had kind of sections of the book on there, but when I tried to publish them on Ingram Sparks, they they raised an objection that it was already published, and I so I basically made it um, ah, okay. kind of dormant that section. Um, yeah, okay. So no, there's no. Sadly, there is no course. I, I mean, I, I wish I felt qualified to teach it but i mm. think um they speak better for themselves in the books yeah well actually that they do certainly they do do you have because we are unfortunately coming towards the end of our talk now but so my question is do you have any other plans which i mean now you really 20 21 22 you published those three great works anything up for 23 or 24 that we should know about so I'm working on a new version of the Holy Book of Thoth, which is more affordable. Um, we've talked about how it's a great big book, um, and so mm -hmm. it's expensive because of the Amazon. Um, so I want to do that in two volumes to make it more accessible. Um, mm -hmm. And then pneumatology. So I'm, I'm part way through um, producing Schmackov's other great work, and this is just a, a huge. <laughs> you know, the first one's difficult, and this one is as well. So I, I, I'm doing it kind of in chunks, and I'm having to have a few months off, and then. Yeah. And then go back to it. But that's certainly in, in the pipeline already. And I also want to do a synthesis of them all. So right. my version, if you like, of what I've learned from, from all the different various people that kind of mm -hmm. bring it all together. Any timeline for that or not yet? I think I'll end up producing the Schmackov one first simply because it's more straightforward and it makes that easily more easily accessible and affordable and that then that one's done. Then pneumatology and then 
than my my book, which will take right. longer. <laughs> right. So we are looking forward to to find out more about this Silver Age Russian occult period, but also about Shin publications and yourself with that book where you sum up your personal experiences with that, which is great. So thank you so much, Charlotte, for the time you gave us and especially for the time you gave to those books, which I really believe are, are worth the discovery. And um, is there any any message you would leave like to leave for our audience here which which is a, uh, maybe a personal message you would like to tell them um i guess just that i'm grateful if anybody else finds these people as interesting as i do <laughs> you know I, i i felt that i i loved them and that they had, had done something so important and that just that their work deserved to be you know, to be seen and read and, and heard and, and for, you know, there to be a real memorial wreath, I suppose, on, on their graves, you know, because I think these yeah. were great people, great emeticists. And Definitely. They've got something, you know, good good to share. So that's, yeah. you know, thank you for for, for discovering them and, and sort of giving, giving them a chance to, you know, get the word out. Yeah, well, with pleasure. Well, just take the, take the, Well, actually, it's the card number two on the Holy Book of Thoughts cover by Shmakov. And if you're into the tarot, study it, because that's really the card number two uh, taken from Papus and taken from especially Mebes and, and all those people with a completely different view on this lady sitting there on her on her round on her round support with a with a cubic other support and with her shield and her wings and her 12 stars around her head um so much added symbolism to the usual right away cards that we are used to uh, so just have a look at that at that drawing and then you already know you need to go deeper thank you Charlotte thank Thank you for this and uh, well good luck with all your projects thank you you too thank you thank you bye now okay bye bye
Nossian Number no. 3 by Eric Satie, played by Ryan Bertelow. Great pieces, great interpretation, and great interview before. A lot of things to discover, and please go to the website and find all those links where Charlotte can be found, where her website can be found, and uh, especially where you can buy those books because they are really worth it and it's also really important to support people who do such interesting work. And I can tell you I've learned a lot from reading those books, things I had not found before, even though I've read quite a bit of literature on occult subjects. Right, so... That was episode four of season 10. And I wonder if you want to know what's going to happen next week. Okay, I'm going to tell you. September 24, next Sunday, I will, in episode five, release an interview with young Swedish academic Pauline Gruffman. And Pauline, she has worked on J.R.S. Med, the famous theosophist, but also the famous author of many interesting books. Probably the best known is his book on Gnosis. And he had also quite a strong influence on Carl Gustav Jung. They were befriended, it seems. And um, even though Jung didn't really like that he was compared to occultists or esotericism, etc. Well, he had still been influenced quite a bit by it. So we're going to talk about Med and uh, Mead and, and Carl Gustav Jung and that whole period. And I can tell you, Pauline, she knows an awful lot about that. And it was a really interesting talk with her. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy. Right. That's it for today. And um, I hope to have you back next week here Enjoy the week, have a good one, and take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.